Uh, we're in John chapter 17. If you turn there really quickly. Uh, when I first looked at John 17, two things struck out, to me, struck out to me immediately, and I wasn't sure which way to go. And so after some thoughtful prayer, I decided to go both ways. So you heard last week, and now this week is going to be kind of what I would have tagged on to last week, but I decided I could save it for this week and then do the prayer at the end as well. Um, John 17 is often referred to as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. And although there are approximately 650 prayers recorded in the Bible, I don't know that any of them can match the significance of this time of prayer between Father and Son. And we're led onto a conversation that I don't know that anyone else has ever had that kind of privilege. It's astonishing when you read it. This prayer of our Lord follows the upper room discourse and precedes his agony in Gethsemane and his crucifixion. It's been called the longest prayer, and I think that makes sense for two reasons. Number one, it is the longest actual recorded prayer that Jesus ever prayed. But then number two, as we looked at last week, this prayer spans centuries. He even prays for you and I. So this is like centuries-long prayer. So I want us to read this prayer together today. So we're going to go ahead and do that. And I've asked a couple of people to help me. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow it on the screen in front of you. If you do have a Bible, you can just turn to John 17. And I'm going to ask you to begin reading now.
helping me, and may God add his lessons to the reading of his word. Um, how many of you have a favorite teacher in school? How many of you remember your teacher's name? What grade was it? What was it? Second? Seven? Four? I said one. One. Same teacher? Was this like a one-room classroom, you know? I'm sorry. Fifth, fifth over here, okay. Uh, my favorite teacher, and I'm torn because I had a couple of really, really good teachers, but one of my favorite teachers was second grade, Miss Schiller. And at Christmas time, she got married and became Mrs. Schiller. Spelled a little different. First was S-H, then S-C-H. Um, but this is a story I want to tell you about a second grade teacher who wanted to teach her children about the diversity in the world related to different religions. And so she gave her class an assignment to go home and talk to their parents about their own family religion and what might be a symbol that represented the religion that they could bring and show to the class. So about a week later, she had them all file in with their objects, whatever that might be, and different ones brought different things, and she asked them to get up for show and tell. You remember show and tell in the old days? Well, the first child got up, and this child had a rosary. And so they talked about how, as Catholics, they used the rosary beads to help them remember to pray specific things at specific times. The second child was a Native American, and that Native American child brought in a dream catcher. And he talked to the children about how you put this dream catcher up above your bed, and at night it catches your dreams, and it obliterates your bad dreams, but it helps you to remember your good dreams. And then one of the other children brought in a candle. They said, in my family, we celebrate Hanukkah. And this helps to remind us as Jewish people that God kept the light burning when there was no oil. And finally, the last child opens up a little pack, and he brings out an uh, uh, item of food. And he said, I, I'm a Southern Baptist, so I brought a chicken casserole today. That story just kind of represents for us the different ways that people kind of have ideas about what makes their church or their religion or their denomination unique and special in its own eyes. Uh, when, when you hear the word, and I want you to do this kind of like uh, Rorschach's images, uh, when you hear this word, I want you to think about one thing immediately. Don't, don't process it. Don't think through it rationally. Just what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word fellowship? What'd you say? Man. Okay. Glad to hear it. People have all different kinds of ideas, and I think most often when people think about fellowship, they tend to think of an event in which people gather and they have fun, and it usually surrounds food. Now, I would suggest to you that that image isn't all bad that it's very possible that when you have food and you gather together with other people who are your friends, that you might have fellowship, but you might not. That fellowship involves something that is distinct and unique to itself, that is God's intent that it would have such an impact that it would have the potential to actually change the world. And the element that makes fellowship unique is the element called unity. 
that when you gather together, there is a sense of unity in God, in Christ himself, that causes us to be a different kind of person. So when I think about fellowship and what Jesus says, he calls our attention to the truth, that genuine, deep, real, unified fellowship is one of the most powerful tools for evangelism for the church. It's Jesus who said in verse 20, I don't pray for these alone, and there he's talking about his apostles, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Now he's talking about us. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, that, for the reason that, the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, when we walk in unity as a fellowship together, that demonstrates something to the world that they desperately need to see about Christ himself. It's almost like Jesus is saying, when a watching world looks at a body of people who call themselves Christ believers, Christ followers, who call themselves Christians, they should see something there among those people that they can't find anywhere else. They can't find it down at the local pub. They can't find it in the grocery store. They can't find it at the local restaurant. They can't find it down at the Moose Club. But there is a level of unity in Christ that is life-saving, that gives them hope. It's almost like they're desperate for what we have. What do we have? We have love. We have support. We have acceptance. We have encouragement. The things that people desperately need as people to just be loved for who they are with all of their uniqueness, all of their weirdnesses at times, but to be loved and accepted. That's what unity of fellowship does for us. And so what I've done is I wanted to give you a prescription for unity very simply. The first was kind of like the power of unity, but I want to give you the prescription for unity. And that prescription of unity is actually an acronym. All I did is I took the word unity, and this is going to be very quick, very short. I took the word unity, made an acronym, and so each one to me represents an element of what unity looks like as a fellowship. So the first letter in the word unity is the word you and for that I use the term uplift uplift one way to maintain unity within the body of Christ and even within your home is that we make a commitment to encourage and lift up one another and I want you to think about this is this what you do regularly is this what you do in your marriage is this what you do all of these questions are rhetorical, young man. <laughs> he thinks he's funny. Apparently so do you. I say maintain because the truth is you can't create unity. Only God can create unity. He says we are called by his spirit to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So he creates it. He gives it. It's our job to maintain it. Now, I want you to think for a minute about what Jesus has just said to the disciples. He has just said, you're going to go into the world, and because of how you live together, you're going to convince the world that I'm sent from the Father, and they're going to be drawn to me. Who was he talking to? Remind me, who were the 12 disciples? How many of you know who the 12 disciples are? 
That's the only way I know it. Jesus called to help him, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James' brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Thaddeus, Judas, and Bartholomew. That's how I learned the 12 disciples as a little kid. But those 12 disciples were real people, just like you. Think about it for a minute. If Jesus came to you today and said, I'm going to send you into the world, and you're going to change the world because of my presence in you, what pops into your mind? What pops into my mind is, do you realize who you're talking to? Do you know some of the dumb things I've done and said? The messes I've gotten myself into, and you think I'm going to go into the world and change anything? I'm going to make a bigger mess. You got Peter who says, uh, Jesus, did you forget the uh, get thou behind me Satan thing just happened a little bit ago? Did you not remember that I have foot and mouth disease? Or you got Thomas saying, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, Jesus. I got some questions, maybe a little bit of doubt. I'm not so sure. And you got all the disciples saying, you remember when you said, oh, you of little faith? I don't know that we can do anything much here. But here's my point. When someone that you love loves you back and believes in you and speaks hope and truth into your life, doesn't it do something inside of you? And can you imagine what it would feel like if Jesus himself said, I know everything about you already, Ian. And I know you're a mess. You've blown it sometimes. That Honestly, I think, where was your mind? But I'm still going to use you to change the world. Tell me that doesn't do something inside of your soul. To say, God who knows everything about me, knows my failings, my failures, my sins, still chooses to use me. Can you imagine how encouraging it was to the disciples to hear Jesus, their Messiah, their mentor, their father in the faith say to them, you're going to go and you're going to make a difference in the world. And there's no doubt they're thinking, yeah, but... He's saying, no, no, listen to me. You're going to go and you're going to make a difference in the world. Here's my point. It doesn't take any real smarts what's wrong in people's lives. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that every single one of you in this room have problems. You've got stuff in your life. What it does take real courage and hope is to see that God actually has good plans for them. That God can actually use them. Even with all of their stuff. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He lifts them up. He says, no, I am going to do something inside of you that's going to actually make you a new person. That's the whole 2 Corinthians 5.17 thing, a new creation. And when I do it, you guys are going to so connect together in unity that the world's going to say, I want what you want. So the first thing under unity is the you, which means to uplift. The second one is needs, needs met would be probably the best way to say it. Needs met. And let me explain it this way. Um, a young uh, nine-year-old boy had his grandparents visiting him. It was time for his birthday. 
and his birthday was the next day and so he spent the day with his grandparents had a lot of fun and that night he went to bed and as was their custom his dad would come into his bedroom at night make sure he's all tucked in for the night and they would say their prayers together well that night the little boy prayed really loudly God I really want that Schwinn blue speckled bike that Walmart has on sale in the fourth aisle down on the right hand side for $99.99 and his dad said quiet God's not deaf you know and the little boy says I know but grandpa is he knew something that we need to know that sometimes God uses people to meet needs now I'm not talking about your wishes my command kind of needs I want a new car so you need to give it to me because we're in fellowship together I'm not talking about that I'm talking about far deeper needs like the needs to be loved to be accepted to be a part of to be approved of deep needs now at its root only God can really meet some of those needs you can't get mad at your spouse because they're not meeting every need that you have some of those needs only God can meet but it was God himself who when he created Adam looked around all of creation and he said it's not good for man to be alone and he created somebody else who could walk beside him we need people we need real people with skin on to be able to encourage us help us and to help to meet the needs within our lives I used to say years ago uh, that my dream would be to be stranded on a mountaintop in a beautiful cabin that had everything that I would need all the food I would ever need and all the books I would ever need and I didn't need people I've lived a little bit longer now and I have to tell you I think God makes every single one of us to need people we need community, whether you realize it or not. You might feel like church doesn't do it for you. I'm not talking about church as an entity. I'm talking about having fellowship with one another, having relationship with one another, even beyond your family. You need people who can help to lift you up, to support you, to encourage you, and to help to meet those deep needs that are in your soul. We can never really grow or be the kind of follower that Christ has called us to be if we live an isolated life. And finally, number C, next, the letter I. I said that weirdly, but you know what I meant. I should have done one, two, three, four, but I don't know why I did it C on my paper. Letter C on my paper for the letter I in unity is the letter I for integrity. Integrity. Integrity is defined by Webster as a state of being that is complete or unified or one, wholeness or completeness. If we're going to have real, true fellowship, we have to be real, true people. In other words, another word for that would be authenticity. We have to be authentic people, personally and in our interactions with people. Someone recently posted this on Facebook, and it said this. Politics is when people choose their words and actions based on how they want others to react rather than based on what they really think. And the first comment on that post said this. No wonder we can't put our trust in politics. And that's certainly true about the statement and its ensuing comments. But I want to suggest to you that that statement is as true for the Church of Jesus Christ as it is for politics. What we say here 
how we live here, how we act here, ought to be the same as how we act at home. We ought not have some kind of distinction. It, it breaks my heart when I hear about different fathers especially, because as a father, I take that very personally, who act one way in church so that they're an elder or a deacon in church, but at home, they're abusive, they're mean, uh, whatever goes on. There's something of a disconnect. And is any wonder so many children seeing that disconnect says, I don't want anything to do with it then. Our words and our actions, our behaviors must match together at all times. How we are here ought to be how we are at home. Ought to be no distinction. That's why I don't, you know, I have friends who, I, God bless them, I love them dearly, and I mean that sincerely. But when I talk to them, they talk to me just like this. But when they get up to preach, they put on another whole voice. I'm thinking, what's the deal? We're just people. We don't need to act different. If we have to act different here, then there's a problem. We ought to act the same no matter where we are. I believe that people can smell hypocrisy a mile away. I've had people say to me, I've had people in this church say to me, I'm bringing a friend to church. I'd like you to talk to them. And I said, well, why don't you talk to them? Well, because I've done so many stupid things, they would never listen to me anymore. I'm thinking, no, we need to get our lives in a place where what we say we believe, we actually behave like that. We act like it so that we have a life of integrity. We live and speak the same, whether in church or at work or at sporting events or even on Facebook. We actually live as Christians even there. Next one, number four. The T in unity is the word trust. Where there's integrity, it allows us to actually trust one another. Um, it's, it's crucial that we have the sense that we can count on one another to have our backs. To know that what is said about you here is said about you out there. How people treat you, how people act towards your face is how they actually feel. That it's consistent and because of it, they can trust that you actually care about me. And one of the things I've come to in my own life, and I don't say I always do it perfectly, but it's, it's kind of where I've tried to morph it into. I, want, I wanted to see God's change in this area is I recognize that um, there are things that we all do that don't jive with what we say. Every one of us, if we're honest, there are things, something comes out of our mouth and we say, oh, why did I say that? I shouldn't have said that. Things happen like that on a relational level. People say things to me, and I think, do you really think that? Do you really mean that? Did you mean it as meanly as you said it? And what I've tried to do, especially in most recent years, is to step back and say, wait a minute. Although I don't agree with how they said it or their words necessarily, I know their heart. And I know they couldn't mean it like that because that's not in them. So I want to believe the best about people. And I can do that because as best as they can, they live lives of integrity. So I can trust their heart. And what that means is, as integrity, it doesn't mean you live perfectly. It does mean you're real. So when you blow it, you say, I blew it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it that way. I knew that. 
at the time. Or maybe now that you've brought it to my attention, I realize it. And I want to say, I'm sorry. I, I honestly didn't mean it that way. I need to look at my own heart. I've said that so many times. And we say, I guess I need to look at this a little bit more. Why things come out the way they do. But that leads us to a place of trust. It was Nathan Hale during the Revolutionary War who said, we must all hang together or assuredly we shall all hang separately. There ought to be something in us that says, in this community, in this surrounding area, you need to know you've got an advocate. You have a supporter. You have a friend who will stand for you no matter what. And how I talk about you here is how I talk to people out there about you. So like when I sit down at Bud's, some of you have seen me over at Bud's getting coffee. When I sit at Bud's, happened just recently, people are asking me about different things, what I'm doing. I tell them about you. I tell them about the kind of people that God has brought to this place. And how amazed I am that number one, you let me even do this. And number two, that God has done such amazing things in your life. I talk about people in this church who used to be this way, but now they're this way. That's the transforming power of God. So I want them to know that how I speak to you here is the same way I speak to them out there. That's trust. And finally, number five, why is yielding? Yielding. Oh, it's up there too. I should have looked. Letter E, yielding. Two areas of our lives require yielding. First, we need to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me just say, one of the things that was bandied about a lot in the 1970s, and I've seen it in most recent years make a comeback, is that people say this, well, I've asked Jesus to be my Savior, and there are different areas of my life that I've asked him to be Lord of. He's not complete yet, but it's getting there. There's things I know that I'm not doing right, but I don't want him to touch those areas yet. So I, he's my Savior, and he's becoming my Lord. And I want to suggest to you that if Jesus is not Lord of all your life, he's not your Savior at all. You have to yield to his Lordship. He is the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus Christ is either the Lord of your life, every jot and tittle of it, or he's not your Savior. So the first thing is you have to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And secondly, you have to yield to the greater good of the body of Christ. And there are times, just like with these bathroom renovations, I can tell you I probably have opinions about things, but I say constantly, who cares? It's a bathroom. It's a building. It doesn't ultimately matter. Ultimately, we yield to people, to one another. We don't live in such a way as to, as to demand our own way. We give way to others. We keep in mind that our call is that by unity the world may know that Christ has been sent from the Father. We need to be willing to yield our personal desires and preferences, yield all that stuff that sometimes seems so big in order. It's kind of like in marriage. I don't know how long you guys, who here has been married more than 50 years? Sure. Oh, back there too. How long have you been married, Art? 52. 53, they beat you. 53 years. I can guarantee you that Art and Jean and Frank and Connie have had to learn a lesson. 
if they don't always get their way and they have to yield to the other. Sometimes things aren't always the way you want them to be. And that's okay. I like things a specific way. I don't know why that is, but I do. I like things my way. And I've had to find that Tabern also has her way. And I find that when I try to tell her to do things her way, my way, it doesn't always go over well. So I've had to learn, and she's had to learn probably way more than I've had to learn, how to yield, how to give place. Um, unity, the unity of the fellowship. Um, several centuries ago, ancient China wanted to secure its borders against the marauders from the north, primarily the Mongols. So they decided to erect a major defensive device. Do you, do you know what that is? What? The Great Wall of China. The Great Wall of China, which is an amazing monstrosity in its own right. I'll be seeing it actually this week. The Great Wall of China spans over 13,000 miles. When you consider that some of it's actually built into steep edges of a mountain, so they can't even climb over that. They have 25,000 watchtowers on it. It is over 30 feet high and 30 feet wide, so you can actually drive a chariot on it so they could get from place to place quickly in order to help against anybody who might try to breach the wall. This is a huge defense that guards their whole northern border. It was to be a protection against all of their enemies. And yet, in the first 100 years in which the Great Wall of China was built, they actually were invaded successfully three different times. Do you know how it happened? The watchmen at the gates were bribed and let the enemies in. And I want to suggest to you that if we don't walk in unity, it's like opening the door to the enemy. You invite him into your life. We need to stand together or we will fall apart. If you don't stand together, you open the gate to the enemy, to you and to your family and even to this place that God has called together by his name. So Jesus' final prayer is that we would walk together in unity as the Father and the Son are unified together. If his prayer means anything to you at all, it ought to be, God, help me to walk that way with my friends and family that are gathered here. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Father, we recognize that uh, in all that we do, we want to, first of all, obey you. We want to hear your voice and to do what we believe you would have us to do. But secondly, we want to have a heart for one another. Lord, there are folks here today who you know, relationally struggle on different fronts, different levels, maybe in their own families, maybe at the workplace or at school, uh, in the job, uh, maybe even here in this church. But Lord, we're saying to you, God, help us to walk in unity with one another. Help us to lay down our own desires, our own preferences. Help us to walk sacrificially and humbly before one another that we might be able to declare to the world as a body, we exhibit the body of Christ and the world would be drawn to what we have. Lord, let that be our testimony, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.
Now, very briefly at the end, I'm going to ask the elders if they would come on up uh, and their spouses and pray for Karen and I, as I will be leaving Tuesday for China, first then Vietnam. So come on up. And the rest of you, if you could stand and pray with them as they pray for us, all of the leaders and their spouses. So, would you join as these folks...